0: Take your Bible and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and if you would stand this morning as we read together, starting in verse 30, 31, excuse me. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is God's word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence this morning so thankful for this one statement that Christ declares that he has accomplished everything necessary that you have given to him. And for our benefit and your glory, Father, would you inscribe these words onto our hearts? Would we live under them, not seeking to add to the works, but merely living in light of them and completing the work that you've called us to in our own lives? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, well, two weeks ago, we had a brief intermission with Jonah last week, but two weeks ago, we dealt with the fivefold witness that we see here in John chapter 4, that Jesus was relational with this woman at the well, that he draws her out as she's drawing water out, that he bridges the gap, she speaks of physical water, and he deals with the spiritual water that she really needs. And then he heralds the good news. He doesn't hold back. He declares who he is. He points this woman to himself. And we see uh, what what Jesus had talked to Nicodemus about in chapter 3, that everyone needs to be born again if they will even see the kingdom of heaven. And we see in the reality of the woman at the well, that very thing taking place, the spirit moving upon her. And she returns to uh, the community where she had a reputation and there she declares the good news that the Savior has come. Jesus meets this nameless woman who's not educated. She's not moral. She's not concerned with the law. She's not even really willing to get into the theological conversation and discussion and yet as she is drawing out water, Jesus draws her heart out and brings her to himself. This is a glorious moment in John's Gospel. It's a fantastic moment. Uh, Jesus has already performed miracles. He's, He's leaning into His ministry. He's displayed who He is. And this woman comes and He shows that He doesn't need your education. He doesn't need your morality. He doesn't need your rule following. He doesn't need you to engage. He will come and redeem who He intends to redeem. Jesus tells us that this moment is glorious in a different part of Scripture. In Luke chapter 15, you'll remember that Jesus dealing there, He says that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who turns in repentance than 99 just persons. There's more rejoicing in heaven over this nameless woman at the well being converted to Christ than if if we would have had 99 Nicodemuses. That's what is being said there. And so you would think, you would expect that the disciples returning from their small journey would come back and seeing this glorious moment taking place that they would exalt Christ for what He has just accomplished in bringing this uneducated, immoral woman from the verge of the pit of destruction to glory. That's what you would expect. But instead, Here comes the potluck committee. Now, I'm not a landmarkist uh, in the fullest sense of all that that means. Uh, But if I were, here would be a good proof text. For Baptists having gone all the way back to Christ's time. The disciples being more concerned with eating than anything else. If that doesn't prove that there's some Baptist impulse in the disciples, I don't know what does. I mean, their return is so I mean, the 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 swing here from being this glorious handling of this woman and her salvation, and, and we're all we we have spent weeks. We're intertwined. We're we are excited about this. And here comes the disciples. Why in the world is he talking to this woman? Maybe he's tired. You know what? Let's get him a sandwich. It's basically what is going on here. If if there is no other place in the Gospel that teaches us that salvation is by grace alone, I think John 34, 31 stands as a testament to that truth. Because in the face of salvation, the disciples ask or tell Christ, Teacher, you need to eat something. By this point, the disciples have walked with Jesus. They've seen miracles. You would like to believe that they would have a profound sense of the gravity of His works and that they would see Him doing wonderful things, but instead they got hungry and they missed what He was up to. Now, before we judge the disciples too harshly, can I encourage you that I think in our own lives our appetites in the flesh often distract us from the glorious things that God is doing in our own generation. Amen. Many Christians are more concerned today with their physical appetites, with their fleshly desires, than they are to have an appetite for doing the will of God in their own generation. We will even bend an attempt to manipulate the will of God at times. Maybe I'm alone in this, but you have a particular issue that arises in your life and you want to know what the will of God is. And so you pray that you would know what the will of God is. And then in some form or fashion, it becomes clear what the will of God is for your life. Most generally in my life, that has come through meditation on the Scriptures because we know that the will of God is never contrary to the written Word of God, to, the, to, to, to what we find in, in Scripture. And, and so we, we come to a conclusion... Of what God's will for our life would be but we don't like it in our flesh and so we just pray harder it's not the knowing of the will of God in our life often that is the struggle it's the living in light of it and having joy even when in our flesh we may not agree or or we have those times when God in his providential care for our lives we've prayed father if this isn't for me would you take it from me and he says no and, and, and removes whatever the, the thing is in our life, but we just kind of still go after whatever that thing may be. Some of you might think that it's impossible. You, you're going to come with your reform doctrine today and you're going to say it's impossible for us to mess up the will of God. And in some sense that's true, but it depends on how you're speaking about the will of God, so let's, let's be clear about what we mean when we're talking about the will of God because uh, the will of God's different in some uh, glosses in the text. There is the decreative will or the secret will of God. That is uh, all that God decrees. Everything that He has intended in history and in the future that He has set down decrees that these things would happen, they do happen, and we cannot change them. That is a great truth. But there is also the perceptive will of God. His precepts. What He has commanded. What God commands of His creatures in terms of their obedience to Him. And here's what we know about the perceptive will of God. Every one of us who are gathered here today have bent that will. We've broken His law. We have understood what His will is in our life. And even if we didn't have the Word of God memorized, we had a conscience that seared upon our heart, knowing good from evil, and we did what we wanted to do anyway. So in that sense, in breaking the the, the perceptive will of God, we have all gone astray. Friends, we are not born with an appetite for the perceptive will of God. We're not. We don't come into this life going, well, I want to know what God commands of me and I want to submit to it. That's not, have, you ever, have you ever been to the nursery and found that child? No? No, those children are born in such a way I can't remember who, uh, who said it, but somebody, Brian might be able to help me here, uh, said that if a child was, it's a grace that they're small when they come into the world because if they were large enough, that was it Vody. Washer that, that, that they would rip us limb from limb to get what they want. Well, that's just a little image of who we still are today. Ten years into pastoring a Baptist church, and I'm firmly Baptist and love this church, but I believe with all of my heart, we are a collection of sinners in this room. Uh, i being the foremost of them. We're not born with a desire for the preceptive, will of God. In our flesh, it's just not there. For us to desire to walk in obedience to the perceptive will of God, it takes something miraculous. It takes what what Jesus has just spoken to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3. We have to be born again. He has to radically change our nature. He has to take us from being followers of Satan and He has to give us a completely new heart, a new nature, that we might even have a a desire, that we might be satisfied with the perceptive will of God. Can I tell you today that if you want to boil down the problems that plague America and plague our world today, it can all be boiled down to this one thing. Our society... Our state, as wonderful as we think Texas may be, I'm not going to go there. As wonderful as we understand the providential care for our nation has been in so many generations, the problem that plagues us today is the same problem that plagued our forefathers, and it's this, we don't love the perceptive will of God. We love our own will. We love our own way. Here the disciples come in this moment where the secret will of God for this woman at the well is just made known. Uh, the, the decrees of God and her coming to salvation have been made plain here in the text. And here the disciples come and they tell Jesus to eat. Now what I want you to see in this narrative is, is something that's consistent throughout these first chapters of Scripture, and they should encourage us in our reading of the Bible. And I want you to hear me. Uh, I, I think we should have a literal hermeneutic to literally understand the literal inter- intention of the uh, uh, original author. We have to come down to the level of authorial intent. What did? It, it doesn't matter so much, Sarah. What you think the author meant? It matters what the author actually meant when he wrote it. And we got to understand that. And there are some people, though, that will come with a wooden literalism to the extent that we find in the text. Uh, uh, you remember Nicodemus is told to be born again. And old Nicodemus has been taught a wooden literalism. Now, how, Jesus, can I be born again? Do I have to enter into my mother's womb again? As a, uh, he, he's missing the point that Jesus is making. Old well, Nicodemus isn't alone. Uh, We come to this nameless woman at the well, and Jesus tells her, I will give you living water, and she says, all right, where's it at? She's thinking in the physical, material, wooden literalism. Well, those two aren't alone. If we read verses uh, 32 here, Jesus says, I have food to eat that you may, that you do not know about, and what do the, what do the, disciples do? Do they pause and say, now there has to be a spiritual implication in what he's saying here. We must be careful about interpreting the words of Christ. No. They do the same stinking thing that Nicodemus did, that the woman at the well did, and they go, hey, did anybody give him something to eat? This is what's going on here. And so I just want us to use that template to be careful about too much of a wooden literalism. Authorial intent and understanding the words as they were originally written and, and not overly allegorizing the text. I'm with you. But we can't be so wooden in our understanding that we miss the point of what's being communicated. And Jesus here responds to their foolishness in verse 34. He says to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent Me and to accomplish his work. Charles Spurgeon calls this the golden sentence of the Bible. What Jesus says here is a summation of the entire life of the Lord Jesus Christ. For our good and for the glory of the Father, He came to accomplish the will of the Father. I pray. Beloved, that we leave today with a greater grasp upon the joy of what is contained in this golden declaration. There's a reason why you find the Super Bowls coming up. I have a borrowed vested interest in the Super Bowl this year. I could generally care less about football, I generally read through things like that. But my sister loves the Chiefs and so I love the Chiefs and so God help you if you're a 49ers fan. There's a reason why during that game we will see John 3.16 written on the sides of helmets and on banners. And at some level I, I believe that we've become so infatuated with that and it's a great verse to love. It's a great truth. But we are still rebels seeking to live according to our own will and not according to the will of God. If we were completely glorified, I believe verse 34 of chapter 4 is what we would all glory in. And our Savior came to do the will of the Father and to accomplish it, and we want our lives to look the same. He says, my food, what satisfies me, is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. To gain a better insight into this, I think we need to compare the obedience that we see here in Christ with that of Satan. Satan. And, and here's what we do wrongly in interpreting who Satan is. We interpret, oh, Satan's a bad force out there, but we forget that Satan is, spiritually speaking, the father of fallen humanity in an earthly sense. Outside of Christ, you belong to Him. And so we need to consider his disobedience juxtaposed to Christ's Obedience, you will remember before the beginning is of beginnings that are described in the beginning of John chapter 1, Satan fell. Isaiah chapter 14, and this is debatable, but I believe that uh, in this context you'll see clearly that this is speaking of the heart motivations of Satan in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. And if you want to, you're more than welcome to turn your Bible here. Uh, you'll find a record of what is going on in the heart of Satan, in the mind of Satan, as he falls from his assigned place of glory. Isaiah records, "...how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God." I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. There are two things that I think we have to notice here about Isaiah chapter 14. And about the heart of Satan. One is that he had an ambition to climb above his allotted position to which God had called him. And we we have to think about Ezekiel chapter 28. uh, Describes Satan as being full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. That as God created him. He was in some sense the crown of creation. He was beautiful and endowed with wisdom and righteousness. But what happened is that he had an ambition, and let me just go on a slight rabbit trail here for a second. Brian and I have talked about this in the past couple of weeks. Um, Throughout church history, if you hear that somebody has an ambition in the church today, what do you think? In a general sense, we generally applaud that. We say, yeah, I'm glad you have an ambition. But in the, in the cultural context, I think, has a lot to do with that because we want people to do whatever they feel like they should be doing. And we're led by our feelings in that. But throughout church history, that's not been the case. When somebody had an ambition inside the church, that was looked at more as a vice than a virtue. And because what happens is, at times, we can allow our own affections and our own desires and our own ambitions To outweigh what God has actually called us to. Now, there are godly ambitions. Not all ambitions are bad. There are ways in which we should have an ambition to do the will of God in our own generation. But oftentimes, we find people with ambitions, and you know where the ambitions terminate? Not on the will of God and not on the glory of God, but on self. And preachers are the worst. They come in with an ambition and we want to build buildings and we want to fill rooms and we want to have our name on the big marquee outside and the ambition all terminates in them and they ultimately are just instruments in the hands of satan generally to divide people so we need to be careful about ambitions and we need to see here that that satan had an ambition to exalt himself above the living god and above that position to which He was called to. We see so much of this even in our culture. God has assigned at birth, and this is controversial, and it's insanity that it's controversial, but God has assigned at birth every one of us in this room a gender. But our culture says, well, you can, you can shake the, the chains of, of that assignment from God, and you just be whoever you want to be. You can have a physician aid you and change uh, all of those things about yourself. You can take on a new identity. We, I mean this with kindness. We are not, uh, uh, never angry or upset with people who are struggling with gender dysphoria. I think we have to pray for them and witness to them. And God alone can deliver them. But Sarah and I were having lunch yesterday. And, and the waiter came and brought me my food. And as he left, Sarah said, Did that boy just curtsy at you? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And he came back, and sure enough, right at the table. My heart just breaks for him. not angry at him, but my heart breaks for the reality that our society has so been warped by Satan to lie to a young man, to rob him of his masculinity and his place in his community as a servant leader in that way. And to leave him with the idea that he should take on feminine traits that are outside of what God has allotted to him. Now all of that was not in the notes for what it's worth. I say it just to say I think Satan's uh, mind has not changed. He's still about taking people outside of how God has uh, determined that they should live. We have to remember that this world doesn't belong to us. It really doesn't matter what we think belongs to God. The second thing that we have to see here is a strong assertion of something that, as I looked at Isaiah chapter 14, sent chills down my spine. What is Satan asserting here over and over and over again? Satan has asserted over and over five times. You'll find it. If you're looking at Isaiah 14 with me, you'll find these, this, this phrase repeated five times. I will. I will. I will, I will, I will. Some of you are going to say, well, big deal. But this is the nature of satanic, uh, of a satanic worldview. A satanic nature will assert its own autonomous will. And the sad reality is that in the light of the gospel this morning, Brian... There are preachers that are telling people that they can be redeemed by their own will. And you understand that the will is really the problem, not the solution. You understand it's blasphemy. What Satan is saying here is blasphemy. And you're thinking, well, big big, big deal. It's just Satan in Isaiah 14, the beginning of creation. But if you'll remember your Bible well and piece it together, you'll understand that a good portion of the angelic host that God had created to worship Him and to bring Him glory to His name followed Satan's I will statement, and they said, so will we. And, and maybe you say, well, that, so what? Angels and Satan. Well, if we come back to Genesis chapter 3, we'll find this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, Now listen, Satan has said, In Isaiah 14, that he will exalt himself into the place of God. And what does he say to this woman? The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. You will be like him. Adam and Eve fell and they fell by their own will. Satan declared his fivefold I will. Angels fell, and then he comes on the earth and he spreads his pernicious lies. And Adam and Eve, in their rebellion, follow in the I will statement. And the reason why I get so worked up around here about preaching that lands your salvation on your will is merely this it's demonic, it robs God of his glory, and it mars the gospel. And I've never seen it so clearly till I had to deal with this passage. There is Satan breathing out the five-fold I will, and you have to get a bunch of nonsensical theologians together to agree with Satan that we'll interject the same message into the Gospel. You can see veins bulging out of my neck. It's because this just... Come on, it's there in the text. It's so clear. Our will is not what will fix this. It's only by God's will that we can be saved. Ever since Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, man has been breathing out his blasphemy of I will, generation by generation, and every one of us in this room are part of that. I'll do something big for God. There is no way that we should live in that mentality. God makes His will known, and yet Satan, demons, and fallen man have gone their own way by their own will. And then the question is, what is God's response? God's response is, in verse 14 to, to Satan, look at verse 14 of chapter 3 in Genesis, because you have done this, cursed are you above the livestock and above all the beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, all the days of your life. If I tell you this morning that after we are done in here, after the final amen, I'm inviting you to a fellowship meal and we are serving everyone here dirt. you think that that's going to be a well-attended fellowship luncheon? I would doubt it. Some people in their elementary school years might have tried it in making mud pies. I was somewhat of a connoisseur myself. And no one eats dirt. Why? Because dirt has no nutrition. It tastes gross. It's dry. Well, can I tell you this on the authority of the Word of God this morning? Self-willed sin is a banquet of dirt. And that is what God's just giving Satan what he wanted. God, God is assigning to him rebellion and the consequences of it. But here, how different we find the words of our Savior in John chapter four. It is His food; it's what satisfies Him to do the will of God and to accomplish it. I delight Psalm forty verse eight: "To do Your will, O oh my God; Your law is within." My heart, Or Philippians chapter 2, you'll remember this declaration about how we are to model the willfulness of Christ submitting in obedience. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The obedience of of carrying out the will of God for Christ was not about Jesus. It was about the glory of the Father. What a contrast we have. Satan exalts his own will and brings nothing but misery and destruction to the world. Jesus submits himself, excuse me, submits himself to the will of the Father and brings redemption to us and glory to the Father. Now in the face of this, do we see how foolish it is when religious men, some of whom are Christians, put forth the human will as the mechanism of redemption? Our will, beloved, brings sin and death, not glory and redemption. The will of God is that which brings repentance and life. It is only by God birthing us anew, as Jesus told Nicodemus, that we are able then to live in light of the perceptive will of God and to bring glory to God. The only way that we can do the will of the Father is if we are in Christ. The strength to walk in the perceptive will of God does not come from us. It comes only in Christ. In our flesh, we love our willful expressions of sin. We cherish our sin. We hold on to it. We foolishly argue why it's reasonable. I have heard so many Christians, well, I sin, but here's the reason why. Like, I mean, on a horizontal plane, I may be able to sympathize with you a little bit. But when you bring the Holy God of the heavens who has commanded you to live your life in a certain way, your reasons start to get a lot more flimsy. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. And that leads to the second. So we see that Jesus does the will of the father that leads us to the second emphasis here Jesus doesn't say I came to will the will of the father no he says my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work when we understand the perceptive will of God and we often do we still choose not to do it not to follow through in our actions we volitionally go our own way because we have in our minds that we know better we're tempted to live contrary to the will of god our feelings lead us astray there's a parable in matthew chapter 21 that many of you will probably remember and i want us to slow down and be careful here but i think it's important to think about this particular parable. Jesus says here, "'What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, "'Son, go and work in the vineyard today.' And he, the son, answered, "'I will not.' But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, "'I go, sir,' but did not go.' Which of the two did the will of the Father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe in him. Jesus here is contrasting the religious people who say outwardly, they talk about Jesus, they talk about the precepts of God, they, they, they from their mouth, they're constantly affirming God, but they're not actually walking in light of the precepts of God. And then you have the sinners, you have the tax collector, the IRS, those people, they're awful. And the prostitutes, sinners, immoral people, like this woman at the well. But what I want you to see, you might think, oh, help us not to interpret this, that we gain salvation by our doing. We, we, to interpret this we, rightly, we must see. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. He spoke that he wouldn't, but something happened and then he did. Well, that something that happened is a repentance that is born out of regeneration, which is God's willful act of saving men. And it is only when He saves us, when He converts us, when He draws us unto Himself, that then we are able to walk in righteousness. Not in our own strength, but in Christ. We increasingly do the will of the Father. The contrast, beloved, is still valid today. You can be as erudite in your theology. You can wax eloquent about all of the epics of church history. But if you are not increasingly growing in obedience to Christ, your testimony is poor. And I think you'll agree with me by the end of today. It is important that we actually walk in the statutes, in the perceptive will of God. Do we do that in our own strength? Lord, no. Do we do it well even in Christ? No. We're not glorified yet. But will we be satisfied with a life if we are in Christ that is juxtaposed to the perceptive will of God? There are multitudes of people in Christendom today that look past the precepts of god and say well we can claim to be in christ while living contrary to what god commands and that is just not it's not the truth beloved the new testament is in fact filled with commands if you're here today and you're not a christian you're not believing on christ and christ alone maybe I was watching a movie last night, and it was a war movie. I love war movies. And this young man is just about to be uh, an artillery guy on a tank. Uh, And he's like 18 years old, and one of the guys in the tank that he's going to be serving alongside of says, Are you saved? And the young man said, Well, I'm baptized. And everyone in the tank starts laughing. And they say, That's not what he asked. It's not that are you a religious person, but are you actually in Christ? If you're not in Christ this morning, there's a command for you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. If you're not a Christian, the command of God is for you to turn from your works, to turn from your sin, and to trust in Christ alone. That is the command of God for you. If you're a Christian here today, the entire New Testament tells us how to live in light of Christ and in light of the salvific relationship we have with Christ in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 in the same way he says let your light shine before others so that you so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven in verse 40 3, that same chapter you'll find, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. First Peter chapter 3, we find this, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks of you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. How often have we stewarded our testimony not with gentleness and with respect, but with, I want to be right. That's sin. That's not doing the will of the Father. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, To present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Some of you will come to these... Now, there tends to be two ways to respond to the precepts, the perceptive will of God, I find in the church. And it's really telling how we respond. Some of you will hear those commands and you'll jump up and you'll say in your heart, I will. The only problem is you won't. And that's the problem for all of us. And and, and this sermon is just built, right? For me to just lean into the pulpit and tell you to try harder to work at the will of God. Oh, what a soul-crushing sermon that would be, Brian. Don't come to the precepts of God And think, I will. There are others of you who will be so struck in your spirit by the heights of what God commands of His disciples and you'll also simultaneously be aware of your absolute wretchedness and your inability and your own rotten heart. And you will say, I can't. And you would be right. Now, from here we have one of two directions to go. You can first go with modern Christianity and say, well, then it doesn't matter anyway. I can't and so I won't and so I can live however I want and still claim to be a follower of Christ. Down the other path is the glorious truth that you will always know in your mind that you could never accomplish the will of God in your own life by your own strength. And yet, you will find in yourself because you are actually redeemed of God, the glorious truth that Christ will work in you over the years to conform you into His image. And you will see over the years that what is most satisfying to your heart is for you to see that you have become a person who is doing the will of the Father. And you'll marvel at the reality that this didn't come through Dr. So-and-so's book, It didn't come through the five steps that a preacher gave you. It didn't come by your best laid plans. It came to you by grace and that alone. And you will be satisfied enough with what you find in Christ working in you his hope of glory. You see, beloved, what matters most isn't necessarily that we just take a stock of how well we're doing because we're horrible uh, spiritual investigators. If we think we're doing well, it's probably that we're just self deceived. And if we're despairing as Christians, it's because we're not looking to Jesus enough. W- what we really need to think about in terms of the state of our Christianity is this what satisfies you? What makes your heart go, yes? Is it obedience? Or is it kind of just throwing up your hands and saying, well, I'll just whatever? True Christians do sin. But when true Christians sin, that sin always ends up tasting like dirt. It never satisfies. And some of the sad reality of the sinning life of a Christian is this. We go on sinning thinking that if we just have enough of that particular sin, that maybe one day it will satisfy. And it never does. But doing the will of the Father is better than anything else. But we, we have to think about this a little bit further. Can we accomplish that? Can we accomplish that? We can't. But the glorious truth in this golden statement is found at the very end. Look at verse 34. My food, what satisfies him, is to do the will of him who sent me. Not to think about it, not to pontificate about it, but to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus knew that obedience brings glory and blessing. So he humbled himself. He grew in wisdom and in favor with both God and man. He lived every day of his life. Think about this reality. There's. Varying theological opinions about how much Jesus knew. I think that from a very young age, early in the narratives that we find in Scripture, I think we find a Jesus who's coming to grips with his own identity, and he's cognitively aware of what's going to happen. And I think the obedience of Christ is so much more glorious when you realize that between him and his glory stands a cross, and he still accomplishes every day the will of the Father. I mean, I can't, I can't go two hours accomplishing the will of the Father. But Jesus actively obeyed day in and day out, growing in wisdom and in favor with both God and man. And He says in John 17, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave Me to do. There's nothing that, that the Father sent the Son to do that Jesus went Oh no, I didn't tie that little red ribbon around my finger. I forgot that one thing. We don't ever have to worry about any of our salvation having a loose end. It's all been accomplished. He's done the work. John 19, Jesus when when Jesus had received the sour wine, you'll remember this. What did he say? He said, "It is finished." Te telestai. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In Mark chapter 14, what we read this morning at the table, Jesus says there in the garden of Gethsemane before it is finished, he leans in and he prays for you and he prays for me. And he says to the Father, Oh, that this cup would pass from me. And yet not my will, but your will be done. Friends, there are religionists Who will seek? If I die tomorrow, the first question I want the pastoral search committee to ask is a question about the accomplishment of Christ. Did he attempt or did he actually accomplish? And listen very carefully to the answer. Because some will say Jesus has done everything he can, he set the stage for redemption. Now follow through with it. It's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus says here plainly, I have accomplished all of the work. It all belongs to Him. Jesus didn't attempt anything. He accomplished everything. And is that not something that gives you a heart being thankful and seeking to glorify Him for His accomplishment? For what He has done? We are saved because of His accomplishments, not because of ours. So we have the joy of growing in Christ's likeness and being satisfied in obeying the will of the Father, but we never look to our own obedience as the mechanism by which we must be saved. Now we can get assurance over the satisfaction of that obedience that that the Lord is at work, but that is never what we glory in. We only glory in what Christ has done. Beloved, we are saved only because of the meritorious works of Christ. Now, does that mean somebody's going to come in and there's a reason why in Romans chapter, I think it's Romans chapter 6, verse 1, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Paul wrote that because he knows that our will is still distorted in some way and we want to go our own way. Well, if he saved us, I'll live however I want. If He saved us by His will to do God's will, then I'll live by my own will. Do you hear the insanity of that statement? It's alive and well in Christianity today. We don't live according to our own will because we have come to learn this about our own will. Sarah, our will brings sin and destruction. It, it, every one of us here today will die. Why? Well, I think I've told you this before. The coroner at some point is going to lie and put a mode of death on your death certificate. They could stamp once and for all on every single one of them in form fashion that the cause of death was sin. That's why we die. Because our will... And listen, we weren't just... There's other really cute theologies that want to paint this picture that humanity is just sold under Adam and it's poor Adam's fault and we all would have lived righteously if we would have been left to ourselves. Hog, wash, bull, butter. Whatever phrase you want to use. And I've got a bunch of them. But we willfully go to destruction. We go our own way. And yet Christ has redeemed us. We are called to obey yes if you are in christ you are called to a life of obedience to all of the precepts of god can you accomplish that no but you'll see in yourself a satisfaction with growing in that endeavor if you're in christ sometimes i believe we don't get it some people have framed the christian life as obey and then god will bless you i don't find that in my bible It's God's universe. We're God's creation. If he says obey, we should do his will simply because he says so. And leave the consequences to him. Friends, there are times that the life of Christian obedience will bring misery into your life. But it'll still bring glory to Christ. It'll still bring glory to God. There are times that living in obedience to the precepts of God, you will hope for an outcome that you'll never live to see. One individual that you could illustrate this with is George Mueller. Uh, You remember George Mueller, that great English uh, pastor who was known for prayer. He he didn't have a scheme of raising funds for the orphanages that he uh, led. He merely bent his knees and he prayed. And every time... God met the need that he had. I think George Mueller is a wonderful illustration of of God taking a wretched soul and converting them and then him growing and doing the will of the Father, depending on the Father every day for every provision of his ministry, not self-willed, living in the assigned place that he had. And part of his story is not only that he was able to, to pray an orphanage into existence and fund it through prayer, but also that throughout his life he had three friends that were not Christians. And every day, George Mueller prayed for these men, diligently. And can you imagine, he came there early in his life and spent decades praying for these men. And year in and year out, his friends remained unregenerate. And yet he engaged them, he prayed for them, and then George Mueller died. And he never got to see their conversion. But the glorious truth, when we're in heaven, and I fully anticipate that one of the things we will see in heaven is a joyful George Mueller with those three friends alongside of him because after he passed away, two in their 70s and one man in his 80s came to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Obedience is not done so that we reap the reward here obedience is done because we have come to understand that anything by our will will end in death and destruction it is only by the father's will that redemption and grace come so we seek to grow in obedience not because we get what we want here but because it is right in the sight of god we are called to be faithful we are not promised results to suit our passions Jesus obeyed. He did the will of the Father and accomplished what He intended to the glory of the Father. Some of you may wonder, well, where does the joy in that accomplishment lie? Because here's one thing that we know. Jesus didn't quit. He accomplished it all. Every one of us are a bunch of quitters. And I'm the worst. You give me a little bit of hardship and I start to whine and complain like nobody's business. And if you don't hear it, it's just because I'm sucking it in. It's there. My heart's rotten. We're a bunch of quitters. So, how can we come to this passage and find that there's glory in the reality of the accomplishments of Christ? Because the reality is we can't claim accomplishment. We can't. Sarah, there's nothing. When, when I die, you won't be able to look back over my lifetime and say, Jay, accomplish this or accomplish that. Not that will last. And maybe there's some degrees on the wall. Maybe there's some things we've built. Maybe there's some things we've done, but somebody will bulldoze all over that stuff one day. So, how do we really get long lasting satisfaction in the accomplishment of Christ if, well, are we detached from it? And the answer is no. The joy is found in Philippians chapter 1. Here, Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. As always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the Gospel from, this, from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. What He intends to accomplish, He will accomplish. Accomplish. In spite of us, contrary to us, but for his glory and for our good, we are part of the accomplishment of Christ. Now, that may not look glorious now, and it doesn't in so many ways, but there will be a day, comparatively speaking, when our eyes, all of the spiritual scales will be pulled back, and then we will be there in glory with one another. And that, you know, that church member that really drives you nuts, Sarah? She doesn't have one that she tells me about, so don't. Everybody's going, I wonder if I can guess it. Every person will be a sheer joy and delight to you because you will see all along what he was doing in bringing them to redemption. Those little annoyances, by the way, that you have with your husband because he doesn't take off his shoes in the house and he's a hot mess, and those things are going to be glorified too. I personally believe we will all wear shoes in heaven, but that's for a different sermon. So what do we do in light? What do we do in light of verse 34? I'm afraid you'll go away. Please don't leave today thinking I'll work harder at doing the will of God. Don't live that life. The only thing you can do in the affirmation that Christ came to do the will of the Father and to accomplish all of the work is to lean into that grace and to be thankful. To know that there is nothing of redemption in eternity that will fall by the wayside and that there's nothing in you that will not one day, because of His work, be glorified. So lean into His grace. Continue to cultivate a life seeking to do the will of the Father in the strength of the Spirit. And know that when your time comes and it's time for you to lay out down everything here, He'll let you know. He'll call you home. And He'll bring you to glory. I hope that we leave today Thankful more for his grace. And I just, as we were participating, and I'll close with this, in the Lord's table, I was thinking about this satisfaction and that the food for Christ was to do the will of the Father. And now we've been invited to this table time and time again to be satisfied not on our works, but on the works of the one who redeemed our lives from the pit. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today broken wretches, miserable sinners, but we come in the power of Christ being made right as sons and daughters, heirs to your eternal kingdom only by grace. And so we come thankful, thankful that you understand and know our weakness. You know that we are but dust. And so you give us the ordinance of the Lord's table. You give us the ordinance of baptism. You give us reminders that we belong to you and that you will not let one iota of redemption go without accomplishment. So, Father, might we rest in your grace. Might we know your goodness. Might we live in your perceptive will by the power of your Spirit. In Christ's name, we